Hi everyone, welcome back to the Logical Bible Study Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is the podcast where we look at the Gospel reading from today's Catholic Mass. And the lectionary today, if you go to Mass, you'll be looking at Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 to 25. And so we want to start by reading the passage, and then we really want to dig into the text. What is the text saying? What's the author trying to convey to his audience? And that is the way we always want to start when we're studying the Bible. So here's the passage from Matthew chapter 26. One of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you prepared to give me if I hand him over to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he looked for an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus to say, What do you want us, where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? Go to so and so in the city, he replied, and say to him, The master says, My time is near. It is at your house that I am keeping the Passover with my disciples. The disciples did what Jesus told them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, he was at table with the twelve disciples. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you solemnly, one of you is about to betray me. They were greatly distressed and started asking him in turn, Not I, Lord, surely. He answered, Someone who has dipped his hand into the dish with mine will betray me. The Son of Man is going to his fate, as the scriptures say he will, but alas for that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, who was to betray him, asked in his turn, Not I, Rabbi, surely. They are your own words, answered Jesus. So, the context of this passage, and we always want to start by asking, what's the context? We're in the last week of Jesus' life. So, by this point in the Gospel of Matthew, we've already had Palm Sunday. He's already cleared the temple. And now, verse 14, one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot. So, Judas is known for being the traitor, but there's not much else that we know about him. Except we know that he was in charge of the money fund for the ministry, and that he was stealing some of the money, so he loves money. He goes to the chief priests. So the chief priests are those who are in charge of the religious activities in Jerusalem, those who are in charge of the temple. Judas knows by now that the chief priests want Jesus dead because they think he's causing too much trouble. But he knows as well that the chief priests are finding it hard to capture him because he's constantly surrounded by the crowds. So Judas figures out, well, maybe I can help get Jesus to them, as long as there's something in it for me. So Judas slips away from the group for this meeting. And it appears that what we're about to see here happens on the Wednesday of Holy Week. If you sort of look at the chronology here, it appears to be Wednesday. And indeed, that is how it is read in the lectionary. Now, we don't know what Jesus is doing on the Wednesday. We don't have any recorded things that Jesus does, apparently, on this day. And so many have taken it to mean that perhaps Jesus had a rest on the Wednesday. It's probably the last rest he gets, uh, because from then on, obviously, it's uh, there's a lot that happens in Holy Week. So, uh, according to tradition and, and the way the, the lectionary presents it, 
What we're about to see here with Judas is the key event that happens on the Wednesday of Holy Week. And really, uh, it's the only thing that happens of, of significance on that day in Holy Week. Verse 15, what are you prepared to give me if I hand him over to you? So here we see the selfishness of Judas. He's willing to hand the Son of God over for money. Now, we can't be sure, but that probably indicates to us that Judas is not really a true believer, and he's resisting the work of God in his life. Otherwise, he would recognize how precious Jesus is and would not want to give him up. So, Throughout the three years that Judas has been with Jesus, it still hasn't clicked and he's not really a genuine disciple. In a way, at least that's, um, we're just guessing, but it seems something like that has happened. He hasn't quite engaged with what God wants to do. Now, notice this is the opposite of the way Mary treats Jesus. Remember Mary of Bethany who pours the expensive um, perfume on Jesus and gives him all she has. On the other hand, here we have Judas trading away Jesus for money. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. So they give him this money in advance um, in exchange for him setting up a capture for Jesus. Now, that seems like a lot because it mentions silver, but actually it's not a heap. It's not a whole lot of money. Um, It might last him a few weeks or a couple of months maybe, but it's not an extraordinary amount of money that they give to him. But we know that Judas loves money, so he's quite happy with that. Now, Matthew goes out of his way to mention the amount of silver coins. He could have just said they gave him money, but Matthew specifically says it's 30 pieces of silver because, remember, Matthew is writing for Jews, and Jews are really interested in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He wants his Jewish readers to think of the prophecy in Zechariah 11, verse 12. In that prophecy, the Lord's faithful shepherd is depicted as um, being portrayed for the for 30 pieces of silver. So there's a reference back here to this faithful servant that Zechariah pictured in the Old Testament. And Matthew wants his readers to understand that Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy of Zechariah. Verse 16, and from that moment, he looked for an opportunity to betray him. So Judas from for the next few days is looking for a way to to get Jesus to be captured. But eventually, as we'll see in the Last Supper, it's actually Jesus that takes the initiative. And basically he says, now is the time to capture me. Verse 17, on the first day of unleavened bread. So we need to spend a bit of time talking about the unleavened bread, particularly in terms of timing, because it can get a bit confusing. So the feast of unleavened bread, it's this week long feast and it's celebrated around the time of Passover every year. So Passover, the Jews would celebrate once a year, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was done at a similar time to that. This particular feast, the Unleavened Bread Feast, is done in conjunction with Passover because it commemorates the fact that when the Israelites had to leave Egypt in the Passover, they had to leave without leavening their dough. God just said, get out of the house, don't bother leavening your dough, just leave. And by the time of Jesus... The Jews continue to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they did that by removing the leaven completely from the house. And for them, leaven had come to represent sin. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a really important part of the Feast of Passover. In terms of the timing, the Passover was usually eaten on the first day of this week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that's Nisan the 15th. That's kind of the date in, in Jewish reckoning when you would have the Passover. Nisan 15th. But 
by the time of Jesus in popular speech, they'd come to sort of change the way the words were used slightly. So they used the day before Passover. They called that day unleavened bread. Okay, so the day before Passover is the day that they call unleavened bread in the time of Jesus. Whereas technically, the Passover feast signals the actual start of unleavened bread. But it seems like that day before had become known as the unleavened bread day because that's the day in which leaven was actually removed from the house. So leaven is removed from the house just before the start of the week of unleavened bread. So we know that in this particular week, in the year Jesus dies, in 33 AD, we think it is, in Holy Week, the Passover was on Friday. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread technically began on the Friday, but because of the way the words were used in the time of Jesus, this first day of unleavened bread, as Matthew calls it, is essentially the preparation day before Passover. So we're talking here now about Thursday. So the timing, we've skipped forward to Thursday, Thursday of Holy Week, April 2nd, 33 AD. That's the date we're talking about. Now, interestingly, this preparation day is also the day on which the Passover lambs are prepared for Passover and they're sacrificed and killed. You could say Jesus brings that aspect of Passover to fulfillment here on Holy Thursday, on the preparation day, as he institutes the Eucharist. That is, in a sense, a fulfillment of this preparation for Passover day. Now, at this point on the Holy Thursday, Jesus is probably staying with Mary, Martha and Lazarus in Bethany. That appears to be where he stayed during Holy Week. So the next little speech that he gives, he's saying from his accommodation in Bethany. The disciples come to him and they say, where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? So the disciples know that Passover is the following day on the Friday evening and all Jews celebrate the Passover. It's required and they know that Jesus is going to want to celebrate the Passover and as the leader of their ministry, he's going to want it celebrated in a particular way. So they come to him and they check, where do you want to do it? And here's the instructions. Jesus has thought about this and he's already set up a plan. So verse 18, Matthew's version says, go to so-and-so in the city. So the city is Jerusalem. He wants the disciples to go to Jerusalem. Now, the other gospels tell us a bit more details about how exactly the disciples are to find the person and and find the house. Um, There's some details there about someone carrying a water jar. And it's quite interesting when you dig into what's going on there. But then they go to the person And it says, this is what they should say to the person. The master says, my time is near. It is at your house that I am keeping Passover with my disciples. So this person that they find is clearly a follower of Jesus. And Jesus has probably set it up with them, with this guy that he's going to have a Passover there at his house. So when the disciples speak to this person, whoever it is, the prior arrangements have already been made and it's kind of like the disciples are just using this password that unlocks access to the house. It's kind of an interesting setup that Jesus has done here. So who is this person? Who's the person who owns the house? The Gospels don't tell us, but some scholars reckon we can work it out. This person owns a house in Jerusalem, which is not a whole lot of people, And based on where the traditional upper room site is in Jerusalem today, so you can go there and they think they've found this upper room where where Holy Thursday, the Last Supper, happened, it's in the southwest of the city in the area called Mount Zion, and it's quite a large room and quite a large house. 
So it would appear, if this is the correct site, that this person is quite wealthy. And a lot of scholars think that the person who owns the house is in fact Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. He's not one of the apostles, but he does become a disciple a bit later on. So maybe the person they meet there is Mark. That's possible. Verse 19, the disciples did what Jesus told them and prepared the Passover. So they would have bought all the necessary ingredients like bread, figs, wine, and they get ready. Verse 20, when evening came, he was at table with the 12 disciples. So he's apparently having the official Passover meal, sometimes called a Seder meal. And it's after sundown. They're there as the group and they're reclining around the table. There might have been other disciples in the room as well, though apparently there's only 12 at the table. We're not sure how many people exactly Jesus invited to the upper room. Verse 21, Jesus says, I tell you most solemnly, or truly, truly, I say unto you, one of you is about to betray me. So Jesus has supernatural knowledge of what's about to happen. Why does he even say this? If he knows it's going to happen, why does he even bring it up? Probably because he wants to make the betrayal happen. He wants to get the events happening in motion. He wants things to start because he has a timeline that he wants to follow. He knows the time that he needs to die and the events need to start happening pretty soon. So maybe by asking this question, or in fact, by just saying one of you is going to betray me, then it's going to be a trigger for Judas to actually start the betrayal. That's possible. Verse 22, the disciples were greatly distressed. So they're actually quite surprised by this, except Judas, obviously. But Jesus had been saying for some time that he would be killed and handed over. But now he adds a new bit of information, which is that one of them would be the one that betrays him. And that shocks them. So they start asking him in turn, not I, Lord, surely. Now, that's probably not indignant and angry, but they're probably... Each disciple is probably worried. They're probably uncertain. Is it me? I hope it's not me. So they're kind of looking for reassurance from Jesus. Surely it's not me, Lord. Jesus' response is this. Someone who has dipped his hand into the dish with me will betray me. Now, in this context, it's probably just an, that phrase is just an affirmation that one of the people at the table is going to do it. So Jesus is just repeating himself. So when Jesus says someone who has dipped his hand into the dish with me, well, they were all using that same dish as part of the meal. So it's kind of just a Jewish way of saying someone at this table will betray me. Now, in John's gospel, um, there's something else Jesus says, which is the person I share this bread with. And then he breaks the bread and gives it to Judas. That's a different line here. He just says in general, it's someone at the table. Verse 24, the son of man is going to his fate as the scriptures say he will. So Jesus here says something quite profound. He says that the Messiah must die and it's about to happen. The son of man is going to his fate. And he says that it's predicted in the scriptures. Now, he doesn't tell us which scripture he's thinking of. And Matthew doesn't tell us either. But he's probably thinking in particular of the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 52, 53. Possibly also the Zechariah prophecies about uh, the Messiah being pierced. So Jesus reminds them that it is in the scriptures that the Messiah must die. Why did the disciples and in fact his you know, followers in general, they didn't seem to understand this idea that the Messiah is going to die. They did believe the Old Testament, but it just seems that at this particular time period, because of the way the Romans had taken over their land, 
they'd kind of forgotten about those prophecies that talk about the suffering servant. And they tended to focus more on these other prophecies, which talk about a glorious royal victory over God's enemies. So they were kind of blinded by their presuppositions of what the Messiah would do. And as a result, they'd forgotten about these prophecies of the suffering servant. That can happen to us as well. We can be blinded by our own presuppositions about what God should be doing or what it's going to look like. Then Jesus finishes the sentence by saying, But alas for that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So Jesus says that these events must happen according to prophecy, but the person who actively brings them about is committing a real evil. Now this tells us a lot about God's providence. Notice what's going on here. Both God's um, predestination and man's free will is involved. God ordains certain events to happen, but people are still accountable for their free will decisions. Do you notice that? Judas is entirely accountable for what he did, even though God in some way had appointed the events. So that's a verse that's well worth reflecting on in terms of predestination. Jesus says, better for that man if he had never been born. So Jesus here probably means because Judas is about to commit such a grave evil, he's about to hand Jesus, the son of God, over. It would have been better if Judas had never existed. Possibly also a reference to Judas's own fate. Jesus here could be saying maybe Judas is going to hell and he's going to wish that he was never born. Possibly something like that. Verse 25, Judas who was to betray him, asked in his turn, not I, Rabbi, surely. So Judas knows full well that it is going to be him. But since everyone else has asked the question, it gets to his turn and he says, oh, well, I guess I better say it as well. He doesn't want to be the odd one out. So he says, not I, Rabbi, surely. Now, interestingly, the others call him Lord, but he, uh, Judas calls him Rabbi. There probably is a significant difference here because to call someone Lord is to submit to their authority and to recognize one's own status as a servant. Whereas just to call someone rabbi is respectful, but it's kind of non-committal. It's not necessarily saying that you are a follower of them. So maybe Judas is not willing to commit personally to call him Lord. Jesus' response is interesting to what Judas says. He says, they, they are your own words. Or as other translations put it, you have said so. What does that mean? There's some translational difficulties here. You have said so. There's two possible meanings of this phrase, and you can sort of think about which one you think is most likely. This could be a kind of non-answer from Jesus when he says, you have said so. It's kind of like he's not confirming or denying whether Judas is right. And it's in that case, it's basically like saying, that is what you claim. And he's just repeating it back to him, but Jesus is not confirming or denying it. Or it could be that the phrase, you have said so, means, yes, you have got it correct. We're not sure. We're not sure which of those is the best way to understand that Jewish phrase, you have said so. Because Jesus uses the same words in his conversation with Pontius Pilate, where Pontius Pilate says, in effect, he says, are you the Messiah? Or in fact, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. So there's a question about what does that mean? Now, later on, um, Jesus will do the thing where he gives Judas bread and then Judas leaves the room. But at this particular point, Matthew starts to describe the institution of the Lord's Supper. And this is where our reading ends for today. 
So a lot of really interesting interactions going on here on Holy Thursday. There's one catechism reference, and I'll read that out for you. So in paragraph 610, the Catholic Church teaches, and this is a commentary on the Last Supper, it says, Jesus gave the supreme expression of his free offering of himself at the meal shared with the twelve apostles on the night he was betrayed. On the eve of his passion, while still free, Jesus transformed this Last Supper with the apostles into the memorial of his voluntary offering to the Father for the salvation of men. This is my body which is given for you. This is the blood of, my, of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. So that's the only catechism reference to this particular part, but once we get to the official institution of the Last Supper and the Eucharist, then there's a lot that catechism has to say about the meaning of that. We'll leave it there for today. Thank you. If you're listening on YouTube and you've enjoyed it, please subscribe and continue to share the podcast around so that more and more people can hear um, these rigorous um, exegeses of the gospel reading for each day. Thanks again. Hopefully you'll tune in tomorrow.